Hello and welcome to the 147th episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. Today, we are talking to fantastic writer and director Yaron Zilberman. We talk about his latest feature film, Incitement. Uh, We chat about how he started making documentaries and learnt that he wanted to make movies for the rest of his life. We also talk about the important thing about raising money, how he did it for his films. We talk about his process as a screenwriter and working with legends, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Christopher Walken on his Hollywood debut, which he wrote and directed, called A Late Quartet. And obviously, we talk about how he made the political thriller set in the Middle East about the real-life story of the assassination of the Israeli president called Incitement, which is released in select cinemas in America this week. If you are in New York, it is in cinemas now. I had a delightful chat with Yaron. He's a brilliant guy. You are going to enjoy this podcast. Before we get there, though, I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and producer. And the latest film I produced, A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, is out now. It's in Sky Store. It's online. It's digital. You can go get it and you can watch it. For those of you who have, thank you so much. If you have watched it and haven't reviewed it, please do. It makes a world of difference. Go to IMDb, those of you who've watched the film, and give it a lovely review. It means the world to us. I've also directed The Dare, which is coming out in America and a lot of other places that I'll tell you about. On March the 3rd, I will be popping across to LA and various other places for some midnight screenings uh, of the film. I can't wait to tell you about that. Hopefully I'll be over anyway. And The Dare played at the fantastic Panic Fest uh, literally a couple of days ago. And we've been getting some really, really cool reviews from that too. Uh, We'll be sharing them on our socials very soon, as soon as we have the pre-order link for The Dare, which is out March 3rd. Super excited. Can't wait for you to see it. Update on the other films as well. Arthur and Merlin is in post at the moment, so we're doing VFX and we're doing the score. And Food for Thought, our documentary about animal welfare and the vegan movement, which is happening right now. We are in post. Myself and Dan Richardson, uh, who is making it with me, I sat down and we had a great go through the edit that Robbie McCain has done. So, more to tell you about that in the future, but that should be out later this year, as hopefully will be Arthur and Merlin, Knights of Camelot. So thank you, thank you all those who came down to the Make Your Film event last week. You are all legends. What an event it was. Wow. Uh, sold out. So much fun. Uh, if you're around in March, the next one will be then. Keep your ears peeled and your eyes on Twitter at FilmmakersPod, at Charles Alderson. And you will see when that date will be announced. So get in there quick. Get in there early. It is a lovely event. You come network and meet people. And thank you all those who sent us emails uh, saying how much they enjoyed it. Honestly, that makes me and Dom feel so happy. So thank you. So, Rain Dance, if you want to go on the Building a Film Director Career Masterclass with the fantastic Simon Hunter director who made ED on, the, on February the 29th, you can get 10% off. Yes, you can. You just put in the code DIRECTING2020 when you are paying for it. Uh, that is the Rain Dance discount we have this week. And do you know what? I want to give some shout-outs to two deserving people who will have their crowdfunders at the moment live. 
The first one is uh, the fantastic Vanessa Bailey, who is a brilliant actress and director. And her latest short film that she's raising money for is called Small Talk. And it's a short film um, about life and about men talking. It doesn't sound as exciting when I say it as Vanessa does. Go to the link in the show notes. Check out her video. She describes it very well. She's only £1,000 away from her target. Please support that if you can. And finally, Neil McKinnery West. He's making his short film Asylum. Now, he's the director of the fantastic film Containment. And now he's making a short film, which I believe might get made into a feature at the end of that. I can't remember. But he's only 700 quid away from his target. So if you want to support either of those, please do. Links are in the show notes. Next week's podcast is with Agnieszka Holland, screenwriter and director behind the brilliant film Mr. Jones, which is out next week. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with fantastic director and writer Yaron Zilberman. Enjoy this week's Filmmakers Podcast. It's my absolute delight... To welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast, Yaron Zilberman. How are you doing, fella? Are you well? Ah, uh, fantastic. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Absolute pleasure. You are in New York at the moment, right? Yes. Is it freezing? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit cold outside, yes. A little bit cold. Not freezing yet, but, but cold. But cold. Okay. It's same here now. It's just got yeah. really cold. Um, <laughs> and I think it kind of makes us filmmakers want to retreat a little bit into our we sort of go i know i might just yeah. sit and write something for a bit i'm gonna eat i'm gonna write <laughs> well, have you lived in new york all your life is that uh, something yeah you for quite do? some time not all my life but back and forth with israel mm-hmm. but uh, i moved here after i served in the army which is mandatory in israel yes it and, is. Uh, and then i came to the united states i studied and uh and here i am making films here but i also make films in israel so it's back and forth nice yes because you started off making a documentary in israel itself didn't you when you first yes i started by making a documentary it was international actually one of the protagonists was british yes uh, uh, living in london so she was one of the stars of the documentary which is incredible yeah jewish swim club in, in vienna in Vienna, and they were they had to escape uh, the Nazis when the Nazis uh, arrived in Vienna. So they spread all over the world, and one of them was uh, her name is Anne Marie Pisker, who uh, went to uh, London. And it's a documentary. What was it about a documentary that you wanted to do first? Was that something that inspired you? How did you even think about you know going? I'm going to make a documentary because this was only what 15 years ago you made this film it might have been before but that's when it came out did you always want to make docos what were you doing before that no 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 so i was working on a completely different uh different world i studied physics and operations research my bachelor and master's at mit wow and i was hired on wall street to do some mathematics and stuff i I love it yeah (laughs) and i I sort of uh but i always wanted to make art art was my sort of love and uh but i tried different things you know uh, to write poetry and then paint and play the cello. So I was back and forth. And then at some point, uh, a colleague of mine uh, invited me, actually a friend of mine, invited me to help him on a documentary. And then I like I was blown away by you know uh, the the art of filmmaking. And then I realized that that was my calling. So I started to make this documentary, which was a project I learned from the project that he was working on. He was working on the greatest soccer players of all time. Mm. 
I helped him with that. But then when we started to learn the history of soccer, we, I mean, football for you. No, no, uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of American <laughs> listeners. It's fine. Soccer exactly. is cool. Soccer is good. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> while doing this uh, sort of uh, research, I learned about this Jewish uh, first soccer team. And then I realized there was a whole sports club that was banned from practicing sport because of an Aryan paragraph in Vienna in the 1900. And then uh, I launched into making this, this documentary. And that was a great experience for me that I said that that's, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life because it really, really was um, a thrilling journey. Isn't it funny, these little things that we pick up as when we're not filmmakers and we go, oh, I want to do that. Some little tidbit, something in there draws us to wanting to go out and make films and wanting to create and and tell a story and I, I I've, everyone I've interviewed has always had the same sort of journey it's kind of pretty much been they were inspired and they felt being on set was incredible and making a story through the camera was just mind-blowing and it is it really it really is a kind of mind-blowing thing that we can sit and create a story and then go shoot it and people can watch it and it's yeah it's fascinating it must have been fascinating for you yeah it's an, it's an incredible experience and as i said the first time i turned on the camera i said you know this is it yeah <laughs> i, I want to do this for as long as i can and uh and it got you know more and more exciting uh with every movie i mean they're all like your children yes indeed. so that that's that's incredible, but that's how I got it almost, almost by a chance. So, how did you manage to raise any money for watermarks, or, or I think it's called swim in various other countries, isn't it? Watermarks. The the way I raised money was that. Uh, so I came back. Um, so I worked on it, and my first interview was a gentleman in in Sweden who was 107 years old. He started the tennis uh, department in that club. He started it at 107 years old. He was 107 <laughs> years old. He started that when he was. Uh, a young, okay. young kid in Vienna. Fine, so fine, so yeah. I went to, he was in Stockholm. I went to Stockholm to interview him. That was yeah. my first sort of experience with that. And uh, with that interview, I went back to, you know, research some more. And then I discovered that the story was actually about the women swimmers and not the soccer team. Because these women were incredible. They were 80 plus years old full of incredible stories about femininity and about being young in Vienna, young girl, and about fighting the Nazis in the swimming pools. And I realized that that's actually the story. And it's a great story. Yeah, so I went back to New York and I met my friend, uh, Jonathan Israel, and he told me, he, he was studying film, and he said, I have a friend who is a major documentary producer in France, in Paris. Why don't we call him? We called him, we told him about the story. He said, hey, come over to Paris immediately. So we went to Paris, we pitched the project to him for several days, and at the end he said, I'll take it to Arte, and uh, we'll make this movie happen. And that's what happened. Arte joined, and then HBO in the US joined later, and the Israeli uh, network, and we made this, uh, you know, using that money, and some individuals, that, that story was important for them, and that's it. Amazing. I love those stories where, yeah, you, the story's so good. Yeah. People go, yeah, we'll put money into this. Yeah. And did they ever question you, the fact that you'd not made a documentary or even a short before? Did they question you or your ability to make it at all? Absolutely. They, they, uh, they questioned <laughs> me, especially that producer. Uh, his name uh, is, is uh, uh, Paul 
Paul uh, Rosenberg. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And he was, uh, he's an incredible producer. And he asked me like every day the same questions, you know, again and again and again. Like, why do you want to make this movie? Why is it important for you? How are you going to make it? And uh, the third day, I think, or the fourth day, he said, you know, he was sort of satisfied and said, okay, um, now you know why you want to make this movie and we're going to go out and make it. Uh, so, yeah, he did question. And also, uh, you know, I took a top the director of photography called Tom Horowitz, who mm-hmm. filmed many Academy Award winning movies, um, documentaries. So, you know, I already in a way surrounded myself at that point with people who had uh, a lot of experience in making documentaries. So I felt, you know, that professionally uh, we're going to we're, we're going to be a team. And I'll that's ha- really I, and, it's, it's- yeah, it's a clever thing to do, isn't it? To to surround yourself with people who are really good at their job. Exactly. Uh, it makes you good at your job because, because I learned. You, because you know, I learned it was a learn, learning yeah. experience. You know, as much as you do it, it's also a learning experience. So you want to learn from the best, and that's what I I did. And they it made them feel more comfortable that that I'm surrounded by uh, by top professionals. And then I learned myself, and uh, that that was the journey. At the beginning, how did you get? How did you get Tom Hurwitz involved in the first place? Was it Paul, the producer, who brought somewhat an experienced cinematographer on like that? Because it's very difficult for young filmmakers or filmmakers starting out to make their first feature doc, you know, live action, to try and get high-end talent involved. Now, I know you've got some money at this point, but still, people have got to take a chance on you as well. So how did you get someone like Tom involved? Yeah, Tom, I mean, first, uh, the first thing I did was to, of course, watch uh great documentaries and and figure out you know who are the dps that filmed those documentaries and then uh, i approached i think three and interviewed them and they were very uh, paul managed uh, to arrange a meeting for me with a french dp uh tom i i I approached him through the internet i just uh, found him sent him an email explained what i want to do and he was excited about the story and he said you know let's meet and once we met and spoke about it he felt uh, comfortable, you know, doing this with me, and that's that's how uh, how Tom uh, got involved. Amazing, I like that. That's really <laughs> nice. Yeah. How did you feel then on set when you were making it? What was your? Uh, I, what was I your as process? I said, I said the first time I, I turned on the camera, that was in Stockholm. Uh, I interviewed this guy. It was so uh, exhilarating. As a 107 year old, he felt like a kid. And the, the the whole dialogue was so natural for me and so much uh, fun and interesting and exciting that I said, wow, you know, I want to meet, you know, it started as a documentary, so I wanted to meet all these people. And then I went back to Israel and I met these women swimmers and they told me these incredible stories. And uh, I just felt, you know, natural. I felt that that's what I, it, it's an art form that I did not explore before. As I told you, I tried, you know, I painted, I wrote, I um uh, um, uh, played in the cello. So I was into, you know, music and arts all my life. But suddenly I realized that actually my talent is uh, more tuned to filmmaking in the sense that it has both the artistic element and the, you know, it's, it's a big operation too. Mm. So combining these two was uh, fun and natural for me. And uh, that, that was the start. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So from there, you did you want to make more documentaries? Because I know your next film, which is, uh, you know, your, your nice big Hollywood movie, if you like, and we'll come to that in a second. But did you want to carry on 
you know, making docs after that? Or did you always want to push into working with actors and move forward that way? I think that what happened was just a matter of curiosity. I was really curious to see how a, a fiction film would work because now that I did this documentary, I wanted to just explore a new uh, way of, of, you know, making uh, movies. I did not exclude making a documentary, of course, but I said, you know, I'm not going to now run after stories and, and, you know, because you need, you really need to find a great story. And I said, instead of do- doing that, uh, let me come up with a personal story or something that interests me mm. that I can uh, just actually sit down and write. So it was that right. kind of approach. Just like, let's, let's continue to explore. And uh, so I had two, two stories. One was about the assassination of Robin. Uh, and I sat down with a friend actually in London. I was in London showing watermarks in a, uh, I think it was the Jewish Film Festival in London. Yes. And so I, I took several days just, you know, walking the streets, just getting uh, the atmosphere, watching movies in London, like sort of art movies that I really, really loved. And uh, from that, you know, you get into a space. And then I said, you know, what would be my next? And I had these two ideas. One, assassination of Robin. The second was about a string quartet taking, in a way, my family story and try to, you know, uh, say something about that within the world of string quartets, which I really, really loved since youth. Mm. And I knew so much about. And then I sat with a friend of mine who was in London, a historian, a sports historian, actually. And he, he convinced me that it was too early to make a movie about Robin's assassination. It was too close to the assassination. He thought that maybe many new information will arise. And maybe I need to wait with that. Maybe the public is not even ready to watch a f- movie about the assassination. So I, 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 you know, he convinced me. And then I said, okay, so my next project is the other one that I love so much I want to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started to make um, that movie about the string quartet. Which is called A Late Quartet. Yes. And it stars uh, Catherine Keener, Christopher yes. Walken, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Imogen Poots, the lovely Imogen Poots, yes. uh, and Wallace Shawn, and many, many other yes. brilliant yes. actors. And Mark Ivanier, too. There's an Israeli yes. actor called Mark Ivanier. is superb. Yes, absolutely right. Um, and... Now, this is a big film. This is kind of, you know, it says 12 million, but hey, we'll, we'll no, take no, all no, that no, with no, a pinch no, no. of salt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 12 million. I don't know where it said that. It was, uh, <laughs> no, but it was still, uh, you know, like uh, 6.3 million, which is a big budget. It's I mean, a big budget. Israel, for, yeah. sure. for America, uh, it's, a, it's an independent, you know, there's, there's a, uh, it's, it's an independent movie. Like the bracket is really 5 million and the rest is just. Uh, you know, what we do a little bit that, that the unions allow us to do in excess. To get this cast on is, is a big thing. So let's start talking about how you wrote it, um, first of all, what your process is as a screenwriter, and then how you actually managed to develop it into this fantastic award-winning film with an amazing cast. Um, first of all, what's your writing process? Obviously, you, you base this a lot on your own life and your history. How did you even start to go, I know how to write a screenplay <laughs> yeah, yeah. and make it in any way cohesive because it's so hard to write screenplays? Yes. I think that the first thing that I did was um, I took, you know, I, I wrote down the characters. I started to d- define the characters, both from my world, but also from the world of string quartets that I knew a lot and I read so much about famous uh, string quartets in the history and how mm-hmm. their dynamic, their personalities, the issues that they dealt with, what kind of problems 
they had over the years, you know, only those that played for decades, of course, because I was dealing with like sort of a family of 25 years. Um, so, so that, that the idea was to, you know, research, but then I started to define the characters. That was the first thing. And then I also took a course, like a crash course. It's a three day course that, uh, that, uh, what's his name? Uh, he's a famous, um, he wrote the, the, the book story. Uh, Robert McKee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, a friend yeah. of mine recommended, I went, I took these three courses, three days, it's like really an intense course, uh, but it, it really uh, teaches you a lot in terms of the, you know, the basic principles of how to write a screenplay. It's just like, and then you analyze movies, you know, you watch movies that you know and love uh, throughout history and you see how, you know, how, how that, that structure works and how it departs from the structure and and all those things, so it gives you a good understanding of the the, the three act stru- structure. You know, mm-hmm. beginning, middle, end. You have these points. You know how how sequences work and scenes and and things to think about. And and uh, but they're all things that you know when you watch movies. You just not you don't formulate them. But then when you no, when you when you see the formulation, it's just an interesting exercise um, that you can uh, sort of refer to. So that was the first thing that I did, and uh, and then I approached um, a filmmaker that worked with my my uh, my wife at NYU. They made a movie together, and we joined forces. His name is uh, Seth Grossman. Mm-hmm. We uh, so then I and I came already with like a story written. I knew the plot, I knew the characters, I knew everything, but I still didn't know even the format of how to write a script in terms of the uh, the software. You know, yeah, just sure. basically writing that. So uh, mm-hmm. he joined, we joined forces, and we started to uh, work together as a ping pong. He made major contribution uh, as a co-writer, and we finalized the script. And then I've rewritten it for another, I think, year or two. Uh, it, it just it takes, a, it takes a long process. You know, you write something, and then it takes some time, and then you read it again, and you find all the problems and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, what needs to be developed and what's not uh, authentic enough and why you didn't dig enough into your own soul. So this is a process where you keep on rewriting. Yes. And then at some point I felt that it was uh, ready. Right. And we, okay. and we approached a, a producer here in New York and that producer had uh, his sister is a top screen, uh, casting director. Mm-hmm. Who is superb and very talented, and she also joined forces with us, and she started sending it to actors. How did you get someone like the legend Philip Seymour Hoffman in your film? I knew Philip Seymour Hoffman back then made a uh, a program in Carnegie Hall where he went on stage with a string quartet, and they played music. I think it was morbid music, music about death, and he read from uh, Philip Roth's book that all, also had to do with death. So that was a combination, and he was in tears on stage, and I knew that the subject of string quartet speaks to him. So we sent him the script, and um, he said immediately that, you know, that's something they probably want to do, but he's busy for the next year and a half, so he will not be able to. He wants, right. he wants to read it, not to fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And then we continue to cast the movie, and we, you know, luckily we got amazing actors like uh, Christopher Walken, 
Mm, and uh, Imogen Poots and, and Mark Ivanier. And then uh, at some point, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was, uh, was available again. So he read the script and joined with us. He also wanted to act with Christopher Walken. That was a dream of his. But I think it's the response to the script. I mean, each one of them said to me that this script was actually their character. The character they're about to portray is actually so much about them. To a level yeah. where Philip Simoffman and Walken told me it's the first time in their career that they had a chance to act themselves, like who they really are in a way. Their conflicts, their dilemmas, their world. Uh, so I think it's a match between characters, script, um, uh, personalities of the actors, uh, their desires, you know, what they want to explore. And the personal meeting I had with them, I think that uh, they, they, they knew that I knew what I was talking about and what, what I'm trying to do and felt mm-hmm. comfortable with that. Felix Hoffman saw Watermarks and really liked it. Uh, it was a major sort of... Uh, turning point turn for him. To him. Yes. And then uh, we decided to make this movie together and, and, and we made a Red Quartet. I love it. Um, just jumping back slightly, uh, and then I'll come to how you felt on set and those first moments. Working with Seth um, Grossman, your, your co-writer on it, how did it feel then to write with someone else? How was that for you? Was it difficult to relinquish or was it easier process? Because I know a lot of screenwriters out there are contemplating working with other people if they're not already. Uh, and any little advice for what you did right or wrong? Yeah. Great. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to remember that this is a first experience for me. So, mm. you know, I'm not familiar at that point with uh, with script writing that much at the beginning. You know, later I, I yeah. developed an expertise, of course, and, and now, you know, I'm, I, I, it's a different... Winning awards it, for it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> big it, ones. It's a different, <laughs> different world. But I'm just yeah. saying that back then, so for me, and Seth, Seth is a very fast writer, very imaginative and a quick thinker, uh, creative. So it, it was really a joy to work with him. We sat down for hours and hours and hours in my living room, brainstorming, talking, describing the characters, the plot, you know, because that was already written. I mean, the plot was more or less set before that. Not everything, but a lot of it. And, and I think Seth was, was amazing in, in, uh, in exploring it, developing it, and, and writing great dialogue for it. So it was, it was a great experience. That is really nice. That's all I can say. Great experience. Then uh, I rewrote it by myself because I, I really wanted to personalize it. So it had mm-hmm. to be more, I had to bring it back close to me as a director, you know, and all directors do that. It's not something special. We all tend to, you know, get a script, unless it's a studio movie and it's a different story, but in independent filmmaking, a director always has to eventually bring it back to, where his uh, his soul is, you know, like yeah, personal. Well, you've got to bring it back to where your voice is, exactly. you know, um, his or her putting that stance on it, you know, you can, as a director or a, you know, you've got to do that. Yeah. I think it's very important. Yeah. Um, even if it's someone else's script and it is a studio movie, I still think you've got to try and put your own voice on it um, a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. No, you do it as, as a director. I'm just saying, script wise. Mm. It's just a little bit more complex because usually it's been developed for many, many years and uh, executives are, you know, feel more um, sort of connected to particular words, dialogue, etc. It's just harder. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It happens big time. It's just a little bit more uh, complex and more, uh, it's just harder. That's it. Yes. Yes, it is. 
That's all I want to say. Depend that you have more control, more control, more control, so you can you can change stuff and you don't need the approvals and things of that nature. Yes, and I think that that's hugely important. It absolutely is. So now you've got your your script, you've got your cast, and now you're turning up on set to direct your first live action um, film, and you have. Probably one of the best casts that, you know, anyone out there listening to this would want in their movie. Catherine Keener, Christopher Walken, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Imogen Poots, all these other names that we listed before. Um, how did that feel, walking on set, the rehearsal? <laughs> yeah, it felt, I'll tell you, it felt uh, the closest that I can say is that you are on a roller coaster in the highest peak of the highest roller coaster out there. It just goes like slides down and you're like, <laughs> that, that's the situation. You're like really trying to hold on to your fears uh, and be able to function at your best because that's what called for at that point. You have to answer thousands of questions because mm-hmm. you're being asked thousands of questions. And, yes. uh, and also at the same time, simultaneously, because it's my first, you know, fiction film, I have to, you know, learn so much. So every second is a learning experience for me. Mm. So I had to, to learn from Philip Seymour Hoffman, from Keener, from walking. It's just like you try to absorb him much, as much as possible about acting, what an actor is, what, does, what are they trying to do, what makes them move, what makes them tick, what's, what's going to make the, say, the next scene, you know, what you want it to be, what you imagine it to be. Uh, later, I learned how to make it what it could be. Not just what you thought it should be. That's, I think, the first experience you are. You're also very sort of holding on to what you thought or think or prepared as opposed to what it, it is and what's happening and just to go with it. So you learn how to do that too, which is, uh, I think, an, an important experience for a director. Uh, yes. But, uh, but, but that, that first experience was tough. Every day it was, you know, better and better and better. And at some point I felt totally comfortable and uh, surfed the wave of these incredible actors. But not just incredible actors. I want to mention that the director of photography is also a legendary, mm-hmm. Fred Elms. And yeah, he's amazing. Amazing director of photography. He's recently done The Looming Tower, The Night Of, the amazing TV series. Yeah, um, yeah he's yeah. An amazing. So he must have helped massively. He helped massively. Um, Massively, yeah. massively uh, with that. Uh, you know, it doesn't help you with working with actors. That's a director's job. Mm-hmm. But, in, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had many sort of, we walked in the free collection because I wanted the that museum and the paintings in the free collection in Manhattan to be, they're all, you know, classics from the masters. I wanted it to be the inspiration, particular paintings, the inspiration for how the movie would look like. And so Fred and I walked in that museum, spoke about every painting, the composition, the colors, um, and all sort of uh, elements like that in order to define it. So that was also a great experience for me to see how he executes it, you know, um, and how, how, how a film is being made. I mm-hmm. not go to film school. I wasn't on set. It was the first time I was in a fiction set uh, in my life. I remember wow. the day before the uh, assistant director, first assistant director just told me, you're wrong, that's how it's going to work out. <laughs> you go, you you know, there's a moment, you go in with the actors, you do the blocking, they're going to go do the makeup and clothes, you come back mm-hmm. and, you know, you work with the DP, there's lighting and it's, it, you know, exactly how this whole process is going to work. And so mm-hmm. I had to learn in a day. 
and uh wow oh wow. my gosh see i've i've made quite a lot of short films and promos and brand media before i went to make my first feature film i'm so glad i did because it gave me that experience to be on set um working now i my mind is blown by how this must have felt yeah. for you and the fact you had these amazing yeah. actors yeah. around you um yeah you must have just been a little bit you know in in god your brain must have been in a totally different place how am i going to deal with this this is like being a, in the middle of a fire but you know someone hands you a hose and says right go on then put it out you know or this is you you'd get you just turn up to your own wedding and you had no idea it was happening you know <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> what the hell really really extreme really extreme experience uh, at the same time an incredible experience and something that i mm. uh, you know i feel so fortunate that, that, that it happened and make yeah and you i mean the thing is you must be naturally gifted at this because the late quartet is a fantastic movie it's so well directed and you you obviously had the knack for it did you obviously you talked with fred elms your dop beforehand about your shots had you did you properly plan that out as in you're going right okay i'm gonna track in here onto philip's you know face or we're going to move around here this is going to be a wide i'm going had you planned all that beforehand yeah we planned that we had a shot list it's not as you know meticulous as as actually uh drawing but but we wrote of course all the shots we knew before and we went to all the locations one by one and we planned how we're going to shoot the movie and uh so everything was uh, sort of uh pre-planned uh, we knew what we shot, what the shots would be, as you said, wide, closed, etc. However, to a to a to a limit, so that you know right. we we really we didn't go you know to all the various shots because we left that for the moment. And as I said, because Fred had such an incredible experience, a real master, uh, you let it also breathe and happen. Uh, and then on on set, you know, we we work with that. I I and and. Yeah, so that's how it worked out. It wasn't, you know, planned to the to the last uh, screw, but uh, th- but there was of course a plan. Right, and then you had the freedom on set to, like, say, play with that within with it, with your actors, right? I mean, imagine absolutely the actors would bring something new, and you go, "Oh, look Ab- at that!" and let's look absolutely. at this. And I imagine Fred would help absolutely. you. Absolutely, absolutely great. And imagine after that, some offers might have been coming your way yes. to direct other things, yes. other movies, because we get that. We go, well, if we've done a successful first film, or at least successful enough, and people are talking about it and, yeah. you know, you're getting good reviews, you'd expect things to be coming your way. Did that happen for you? It happened for me, and I went uh, to many meetings with producers in Hollywood, mainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what I saw is that, you know, I when I read the scripts, some of them needed some adjustment. You know, when I liked something, it needed a certain adjustment in the script. Mm. And I thought that not necessarily, as I said, the producers have been working for a long time on that. They had their own vision in terms of casting and in terms of story. Uh, so there was, we, we couldn't find a match in that way. So okay. there were a couple of major projects that just was a match. They all went on and happened. Uh and I'm happy that, you know, I didn't do that. Yes. No, I bet. I bet now. <laughs> because you have to keep, you have to keep your own, uh, you know, your own vision and your own personality and your own taste and your own style. You have to make sure that you, you know, keep true to that. Uh, even with the price of, uh, you know, not, not getting a project. 
Uh, I think that's important, and I'm happy that I did that. And and then I decided to develop my own project because I realized that that's not going to be probably the way my next film will happen. There you go. And this brings us nicely back because you mentioned this uh, incitement was the film you wanted to make before you even Wait, started yeah. writing Lake Quartet after you're doing Watermark. Yeah. So that's, you know, yeah. that's over. You now it's coming up to 20 years. So it's certainly over 15 yeah. years. So, yeah. so suddenly now you're in a position where you go, well, hang on. I'm going to go back yes. to that thing that inspired me, that made me passionate, the story I wanted to tell, um, yes. you know, about uh, Rabin's assassination. So now you're saying, okay, great. Now it was the, back then you were saying there wasn't enough information or facts about, uh, you know, his assassinator. Um, now yeah. is the, had the, suddenly that opened up and was, was you, did you find a load more information that was you know, massively useful for you? Yes, absolutely. I had, uh, in terms of research, we researched a year like intensely before we even started to write the script mm. because we really wanted to dig, you know, uh, what, what hides behind every rock. And we managed to speak to the family too, which I think way back probably wasn't possible. We spoke to the family of the assassin. We spoke to the assassin interview. Uh, we wow. spoke to the security uh, people, the person that investigated the assassination, the person that investigated the crime scene itself. And, uh, you know, which was very important for reenactment and to work, you know, with the actors on on the particular, all the elements that had to do with the uh, with the shooting himself. And the whole the whole uh, sort of the, the research, uh, I think we were mm. we would not have been able to do this kind of in-depth research 15 years ago. It just was too early. That that was true. And here we managed to do that, and that was the basics for the script. Amazing. Do you want to tell everyone what the film is about, and then I'll play the trailer? Sure. The The movie is about the assassination of Itzhak Rabin, Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin, in 1995, uh, November 4th, 1995, in the city square in Tel Aviv, today called Rabin Square, through the eye, through the journey of the assassin. So we took that point of view to see how the assassin, assassin leads us, uh, you know, lead us through his life from being a year and a half before the assassin, assassination, from being a relatively speaking political activist, but a, a normal political activist, to becoming the guy who shoots three shots in the back of the prime minister. Uh, that, was, that was the journey, that's the movie. Let me say to you, the Palestinians, in a loud and a clear voice, we are today giving peace a chance so that our children will no longer experience the painful cost of war, violence and terror. The time for peace has come. Amazing. And as you heard there from the trailer, uh, it is really exciting as a, a journey inside the mind of a killer. And from someone who is, you, you might not necessarily think it's going to be him at the beginning. You might think he's might be the hero. But I think for me, what, what I loved about it is the way you shot it. You shot it from certain angles that made him not look like a hero. And you made 
us question things and I thought it was just you know it's a stunning piece of filmmaking a stunning piece of directing and I love the way you weaved both the historical um, archive footage into your movie so it most of the time obviously when bill clinton's on the screen you kind of go okay well that's archive but most of the time i didn't know i didn't know what yeah. you'd shot and what was yeah. what was real and that yeah. is a huge yeah. impressive feat that you've done thank you thank you so much did thank you have you. any um throwback if you like any people saying you shouldn't make this movie uh, political reasons and in terms of you know because it is a touchy subject you know this is someone who's killing israel's prime minister um this must have been you know, okay, had other people tried to make this movie before? Was the problems that way? Because it's a, it's a touchy subject. Yeah, it's a touchy subject. And there were several people, or many people, that tried to discourage us. Uh, the way I see it now, you know, as a filmmaker, first of all, when I get this discouragement, I today I learned that that's exactly when you need to push strong and make the movie. Mm. So for me, you know, for young filmmakers, this is like the indication. When people tell you don't do it, that's what you need to, to go out and do it. Uh, my first movie was about 80-plus-year-old uh, swimmers, mm -hmm. and everybody, and I wanted to take them to swim. That's the last scene is them swimming together in the old swimming pool in Vienna. In the old, you know, I took a designer, swimming suit designer, to design the old swimming suits with the Magen um, David, the Star of David on it, that they used to swim against the Nazis. So for me... It was, so everybody said, not everybody, but they were saying, oh, it's old ladies who wants to see old ladies swim. You know, they're 80 plus years old. It's not sexy and all that. And, and then you make the movie and then suddenly see, they see, whoa, this, this can be, you can treat it in a sexy way. You can treat these women in the most, of course. I mean, now it's so obvious to me now, especially when I'm a little bit older, it's so obvious to me. But back then, people tried to discourage me and ask questions of that sort. Uh, string quartet, the same thing. String quartet, eyebrow, it's so, you know, uh, Beethoven, late quartets, people won't be able to associate with this. All, all that kind of uh, mm. nonsense that you hear. And the idea is that that's exactly where you have a potential, a big potential. And then uh, with the assassination, when I heard that, it's exactly the same. So I, you know, I'm not listening to this anymore. The opposite, it encourages me. I like uh, and that. I, yeah. And I can tell you, I pursued a movie a um, long time ago. Eventually, I didn't get the, the rights for that book, and Martin Scorsese got the right for that book. And it's it's about the... Um, there was a sort of a Holocaust-level genocide in, in Congo by the king of Belgium, uh, Leopold. And uh, so so it was. it's called King Leopold's Ghost. Uh, an, an incredible historical story. And again, when I was approaching it and I spoke to producers in Hollywood, I was, you know, told, you know, it's too this and too that and it's too tough and why go there? And it's, you know, all sort of people discourage you. And here it is now, you read an announcement yesterday that it's being made, Ben Affleck will, will, will direct. Amazing, and right? and I, lo I love seeing that, you know, although it was a story I pursued and he got it, which is uh, lucky for him. Uh, I, I love I love that I see it again and again happening. Just you just have to. The tough subjects are are hard, but they deserve to be told. Not just deserve; they are the ones that are so important to be told. Yes, it's having your own 
a niche if you like like your all three of your films have a very specific niche they have a very specific audience if you like but then they filter out further than that because they're so good you know but even if you just sold to the the people who like swimming you know outside in the cold or just the people who like you know playing the cello or violin or you've just sold to you know um the israel market if you like and that rabin's death and people who want to know about that story that would still be good enough because you're selling it to a certain market you know who you're selling it to and that's yeah. your film but if it's yeah. great it can spread out further and and really do well and that's i suppose that's a clever thing yeah but but all stories if you really dig deep it's it's, it's about human beings and human beings interaction and that's universal it's universal. It's not about a string quartet. It's about any relationship. Mm-hmm. It can be in the workplace. It can be a family. Like everybody's got a family. Yes. Uh, so, so it's a family story. Yes. It's family drama. And when you see the swimmers again, it's, it's about, you know, universal things of, of struggling, of staying together, of the group saving the individuals, mm. uh, all sort of uh, issues or, or facing hatred or, uh, growing up, uh, you know, in, in a uh, in a conservative society, on so on so forth. So I would say at the, at the heart of every story, there's uh, humanity, mm-hmm. and if you dig deep, it's universal, and that universality is what matters here. So that's why I think that uh, the subject matter is very important. Uh, but the treatment of it is the most important. Yes, that's so nice. So nice to hear. Let's talk about the treatment of this then. Why you chose to use real footage um, and how difficult that must have been to get that archive footage and why you chose to shoot in a certain format as well to make it all match. Yeah, so I I chose to shoot it in uh, 4x3 format. Uh, the main reason wasn't the footage, by the way. <clears throat> it ah. was... I, I try to tackle the issue of identification with the character. That was, for me, the main challenge. How for the viewer not to fall in love with him or not to, you know, sort of uh, sympathize with him. That that was my main concern. Uh, and so I said the 4 by 3 being sort of a smaller format and I'm locking him down into a, a uh, something that feels like, you know, small and uh, like a almost like a jail cell, you know, that I wanted to put him in, as opposed to the large screen of a movie or hero, where, you know, you immediately feels, oh, this is a movie and this guy is a hero. I would say, no, that's, I'm going the opposite direction. I'm closing the, the screen. So that was my first decision. And then it helped me significantly with the archive, because the archival footage was all shot four by three. So now, now they came into you know move together in a seamless way, and that was um, so important for me. So, so, I, so it's like two things that work together. But I would say that the main thing was actually trying to diminish or uh, suppress the identification, and I used other techniques to use that. Of course, that was just one of them. Yeah, that's really interesting to do that. And it's such a, you know, it's such a really, 
interesting topic anyway and the fact that you gave it this certain look and you did these techniques to make us not fall in love with him even though he's a brilliant actor and he's good yeah. looking and yeah. he's kind of social as well you know he's slightly yeah. odd yeah. but you kind of yeah. go well hang on yeah this can't yeah. be the guy who's going to go and exactly shoot the prime minister exactly. Exactly, and that's really interesting, and uh, and it doesn't delve into the why. He wasn't a person who was in his bedroom and he had pictures up everywhere and guns. He wasn't doing that. No, he just no. felt in his heart that this was right, and he sort of pushed his mind to doing this. Yes, um, is yes. that what he said when you were interviewing him in the prison? And uh, I mean, you know, he, he sounded very rational, and uh, and we, we, yeah, mainly rational. And not sort of hot-blooded, and definitely not crazy. Um, and we, you know, learned from other interactions. We learned that that he was social, and he managed to um, encourage, you know, hundreds of students from Barilan University to follow this uh, Shabbat, these Saturdays that he would take them, you know, on a, on a, on a weekend of Shab- of Torah retreats, you know, where they used to read Torah and speak about all sort of uh, religious values. So he was a leader. So when I discovered all that, I wanted to be as honest as possible to the story because I think that's the best way for us to tell a story and also it's the one that we're going to gain as much insight as possible. You learn that eventually it could have been your friend. It Mm. could have been anybody's child. And I think that's very important because that's how we realize you know, that it, that it can happen to anybody. And in that sense, how to try to avoid it, how to realize when you see something like that, uh, that it's happening. So, th- so that was for me very important. Mm. And that doesn't take any responsibility for him as a murderer, of course. No, no, of course not. Not, not, not a single iota of responsibility. But he just says that he's not the only one responsible. Yes. Also people who incite him. There's also political figures. There's also religious figures. There's also university professors. There's a whole world around him that created that uh, bedrock of, uh, I would say, a psychological backdrop that make that narrative that, that killing Robin, uh, the one who would kill Robin is a hero, and made that possible. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, I've been to te- I've been to Tel Aviv quite a lot. I've been, uh, you know, across to Israel, and I've experienced what that world is like. And it's wonderful. It's it's a lovely, lovely place to visit. How did you find filming on the streets there? How did you find that? Was there any issues for you? How did you go about it? Did you get permissions? We got permissions. We have to get permission, and you cannot risk a shooting day without getting permission. Uh, however, um, people would, we, we expected even riots, you know, especially in Jerusalem. Really? Uh, yeah, like, wow. uh, anti-movie riots type of thing. And we did not experience any of that. It was a very, um, the environment was very cooperative. People were relatively speaking, uh, cooperative here and there. We, yeah, we found problems when we went to, you know, want to film in settlements, etc. That wasn't the easiest thing in the world, uh, but all in all, I would say it was a positive experience, and Israel was very welcoming to film. In terms of this, you know, the sort of stylization and camera work, then it was all very much handheld and very much. It was like we were following this yeah. 
you know, yeah. uh, soon to be terrorist around, but we didn't know how he was going to do it in terms of me. I didn't know the full story. So it's really interesting to listen. And, and my partner actually sort of remembered it differently in her mind. She's like, I'm sort of someone older who did this and all these stories that come out over the years of sort of um, myths and uh, different bits and pieces. I suppose it's really interesting to go for you to sort of go, I want to put the record straight a little bit and say, look, this is, this is kind of what happened. Um, that must have been quite difficult maybe in terms of some people, like you say, even though most people are very happy with that, I don't know if the governments were necessarily and how that affected something. If we were trying to do something like that here in the UK or if someone was trying to make an anti-Trump film, for example, or that wouldn't be that easy. The governments might go, oh, yeah, hang on, I, I'm not going to be too keen on this. Did you have any kickback at all? Yeah, we had kickback, of course. The uh, Minister of Culture is an example uh, as to boycott the movie. Really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. She said this movie should not be seen and uh, one should not have made it. Um, we did not get help from the Israeli Film Fund, uh, wow. which is government okay. money, which yeah. uh, at least one of them I know for sure that was be- because of the subject. Uh, the second one, I suspect it's the same. Um, so they, they did not help us at all. Why, uh, why do you think that was? Because they were afraid of the subject matter. They thought that we're letting the uh, the murder sort of... Uh, yeah, they were afraid that we're making him a hero. So they didn't want to let him speak or let him, you know, sort of... They preferred for him to be away from society, not to be mentioned, etc., etc. But I, I, I told them that, you know, we've been doing that for 24 years and what happened? Nothing, nothing good. Mm-hmm. It's only bad because when you don't talk about it and you create some kind of a monster that his name should not be mentioned, mm-hmm. it's like as if, you know, you imagine you had cancer not being spoken about and not being treated. It's the same mm-hmm. kind of thing for me. You don't speak about it. You don't talk about it. Eventually it grows and become, takes over the country. And I think that that's what we've been experiencing. So, you know, things that he used to say way back now became mainstream kind of talk. And people say that in the Israeli parliament. And we've seen crazy things happening, um, be, politically speaking, because and socially, because of the fact that we decided not to speak about it. So I think it was a mistake, and I think the film funds made a mistake as well um, of, of disregarding the movie. So the, the culture minister also did the same. And when, when, you know, traditionally when you win an award, the Ophir Award, which is the Israeli Academy, Film Academy Award. Yeah, this is a big, big fixed, award. You expect the, the the Minister of Culture to call and congratulate you, right? But she, mm-hmm. of course, didn't do that because she went against the movie because the movie criticized her boss, which is the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, mm-hmm. and she's his uh, PR person. So she wouldn't do that, the opposite. She went against the movie. Wow. But it turned out always to help in the box office, you know, so that's that's always great. Well, did the film do well in Israel? How was it received yeah. there? Yeah, very, very well. We were surprised. There's a huge outcome at the box office. People watch it. Uh, schools, schools order it. Schools watch it. Like high schoolers go, uh, you know, like principals take the entire, you know, high school to watch the movie in theater. Uh, we screen it in, in, in many, many sort of um, the army wants to see it. Mm. Uh, we've been getting great response for the movie. So we're hoping, hoping that it's going to help make 
make a change. Yeah, yeah When absolutely. I say make change, is to have a voice against incitement. Yes. Which politicians use today too, too often. There you go. And it's picked up by West End Films again in the UK, which is fantastic, as well as your TV series, Valley of Tears, um, which is one you mentioned early, earlier as well, which is just, just wonderful. Uh, that must be great in post on that. Um, how was that doing a TV series then in, from a, a feature, doing a long yeah. process? <laughs> yeah, completely different. So I, I think I took the, the whole improvisational aspect of it even uh, one step further. Uh, it's about a war. So again, we approached it as a war, as a team. We're mm-hmm. all in it. The actors were superb. The team, I mean, the crew was unbelievable. Uh, and we, you know, we filmed a lot in the north of Israel, in Ramat Golan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Tough conditions, very, very cold in the, in the morning, very cold yeah, in the yeah. evening, mm-hmm. but very, very hot during the day. That combination, you know, you change clothes three, four times a day. Um, you know, so, so it was, and also you have tanks and tanks exploding and people shooting. It's a different kind of, uh, experience altogether, but luckily the team was fantastic. And, uh, and, and again, I went even more into feel free with the material, with the experience, and I hope it's going to pay off. I mean, you know, it's in the editing room, so we'll see when it comes up amazing i can't wait to see that i can't wait at all uh this has been wonderfully fantastic thank you Ron. Your, your story is just really inspiring um could you give some advice then for filmmakers out there wanting to go out and make their first film or make their second film or be proactive is there anything you can say that you haven't already yeah <laughs> again I, I can only say that you know keep on doing it fight hard to make them don't be discouraged by the nose that you get on the way, the opposite. Make this nose just like a, a fuel to get the, the next yes uh, and to find a way to make them because that, that's what it's all about. It's about making films, uh, films that matter. And, uh, and so that's what I can say. Just don't give Keep on fighting. Fighting the good fight. I love it. It's so true. Yeah, if you want to be a filmmaker, go out and be a filmmaker. Fight, fight, fight. Forget the nose. Exactly. Uh, they don't want to work with you, and you don't want to work with them right now. Exactly. <laughs> and keep on moving because there will be people who want to work with you. And that's yes. the beauty. That's the beauty of it. The no doesn't mean anything about your project. It just no. means that that person, that particular person, it's not for him right now. It might be later. You know, just keep on, keep on doing. Keep on believing in your work and keep on improving, of course. Professionalism is, is top. You got you to gotta keep on improve your script and improve your vision and challenge it to yourself. So that's, uh, that goes without saying. Perfect. Um, being prepared is everything. You can make it into film, but know who your audience is and get out there and do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send the elevator back down. <laughs> uh, we'll be back with you next Tuesday, as always. Yaron Zilberman, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Wonderful talking to you. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. It's been amazing. Thank you. Watermarks, you can watch now. A Lake Quartet, you can watch now. An Incitement should be out. And on February the 7th, it's released as well in cinemas in New York, in New Jersey and in L.A., do go see it. It's an important, fantastic movie. So do join us next week when we have Agneska Holland on. She's a screenwriter and director of Mr. Jones. We will see you then. Take care, everyone. Bye. All the best. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.